You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We turn this morning for our scripture reading to 1 Kings chapter 14, the verses 1 to 18. And there the word of our God reads as follows. At that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, go disguise yourself so you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh, Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see, his sight was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill. And you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go, tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me all with all his heart doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. And as for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried. Because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Yes, even now. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their forefathers and scatter them beyond the river because they provoked the Lord to anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left, went to Terzah. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him 
And all Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. Our text this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 15, the verses 25 to chapter 16, verse 14. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king in Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he had committed or caused Israel to commit. Baasha, son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, plotted against him, and he struck him down at Gibbethon, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Baasha killed Nadab in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite, because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit, and because he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. As for the other events of Nadab's reign, and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, son of Ahijah, became king of all Israel in Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanai, against Baasha. I lifted you up from the dust and made you leader of my people Israel. But you walked in the ways of Jeroboam and caused my people Israel to sin and to provoke me to anger by their sins, So I am about to consume Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. Dogs will eat those belonging to Baasha who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. As for the other events of Baasha's reign, what he did and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Baasha rested with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah, and Elah, his son, succeeded him as king. Moreover, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu, son of Hanani, to Baasha and his house, because of all the evil he had done in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger by the things he did, and becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, son of Baasha, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Tirzah two years. Zimri, one of his officials who had command of half his chariots, plotted against him. Elah was in Tirzah at the time, getting drunk in the home of Arza, the man in charge of the palace of Tirzah. Zimri came in, struck him down, and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Baasha's whole family. He did not spare a single male, whether relative or friend. So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Baasha in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken against Baasha through the prophet Jehu. 
because of all the sins Baasha and his son Eli had committed and had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless deeds. As for the other events of Elah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it's true to say that China is famous for many things. It's famous for its silk and porcelain and calligraphy. It's famous for its great wall and its forbidden city. It's famous for its very diverse landscape from the highest mountains to vast deserts. And recently it's become famous as well for its new and extensive and ever-growing high-speed train network. But you know, if there's fame, there's also infamy. China has become infamous in connection with certain policies and things. One thinks of pollution, and there is a lot of it of the violations of human rights, as well as of its one-child policy. And then there are also all of those counterfeit products, things that are said to be real, self are real, remember, feel real, look real, but aren't real at all. Perhaps some of you took note of the story coming out of Kuming, a city in the south, where all of a sudden there popped up a number of Apple computer stores. The signs looked real. The advertising looked really real. The products also looked real. Even the t-shirts on the employees looked real. But in reality, none of it was real. It was one huge Fake job. Some enterprising people decided to ignore patents, violate copyright, transgress the law, and rip off Apple. And you know what happens to Apple products, and we don't have to necessarily feel sorry for Apple because they have lots of money, but it happens as well to all kinds of other products made by Gucci and Rolex and Mont Blanc and Chanel and a hundred thousand other companies. In China, you can buy a copy of almost everything, everywhere. Only, of course, you should not look too closely. And neither should you bring it back to North America, and if it goes wrong, bring it in for warranty. Much less try to exchange it, because it's all counterfeit. And of course, you may wonder, what does this have to do with our text of this morning? Well, as I mentioned to you, I think it was last year, there is a whole sense of counterfeitness, if there is such a word, in connection what is going on with the kingdom of Israel. In many ways, it looks real. But in reality, it isn't real at all. It's not really the way that God wants it to be. And we see that not only in the chapter we've read, but also in the previous chapters. But we see as well in the chapter that we have just read in our text of this morning how all of this spirals down into great 
distress, anarchy, bloodshed, and chaos. And so, as I said, I really don't want to preach on this, but it's God's Word. Let's look this morning at kingdom upheaval or kingdom chaos. We're going to look at the root problem, first of all, secondly, at the righteous judgment, and finally, at royal demise. So kingdom upheaval or chaos, the root problem, righteous judgment, royal demise. Now, as I said, beloved, these two chapters in one book, one Kings, are not the most exciting chapters in Scripture. A lot of this is boring, tedious, repetitive stuff. But, of course, a lot of it's also very negative, sinful, disgusting, and gory stuff. Nadab succeeds his father, Jeroboam, as king. But after two years, he is assassinated by some fellow by the name of Baasha. Only Baasha is not content to be king alone. He also kills all of the former king's family. And thereafter, he reigns for 24 years, and then his son Elah follows him. But yet Elah fares even worse than Nadab, the king killed by his father. Elah is assassinated And you can read, he must have been drunk. He's assassinated after a mere two years by a man called Zimri, who, as you can read, kills all of Baasha's family. So in our text, there is blood and death everywhere. All in all, this is a most distressing time in the nation of Israel. You really can't sink much lower than this, can you? But that's not all, for have you also noticed something? Have you noticed that besides murder and mayhem, not much is said about any of these kings? No great construction projects are mentioned in connection with them. No social reforms are listed. No international achievements are cited. The only thing that is mentioned is killing. Oh, and one more thing is also highlighted, and it's this. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father. Or this, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam. Or this, and becoming like the house of Jeroboam. Or this, walking in the ways of Jeroboam. So, why are these kings infamous? Well, they're infamous on the one hand for all the blood they shed, But they are especially infamous for the fact that they all, whether they are related to him or not, walk in the footsteps of Israel's first king, the king of the ten tribes, Jeroboam. So what is there about Jeroboam that makes him so odious in the eyes of the Lord? And why are all of these kings and upstarts linked to him? Well, really, beloved, it has to do with the second commandment. We, we read it a moment ago in, in this worship service. And there, the nation of Israel and, and we as the people of God today 
too, are, are warned against the sin of idolatry. There we are warned that our God is also a jealous God and that idolatry has huge negative consequences even to the third and fourth generations. And then it's noteworthy that none of the other ten commandments are treated by God like the second commandment. Jealousy is ascribed to God only in connection with the second commandment and not in connection with the first or the third, the fourth, the fifth or the sixth and so on. And in addition, mention is made in the second commandment too of how far-reaching God's anger is and that is not said in connection with any other commandment. You see, you, you can't escape the impression that somehow this second commandment is really unique and special. And that violating it bothers the Lord more than anything else. Nothing disturbs him as much as idolatry. And of course, that's exactly what Jeroboam majored in. He promoted idolatry. After the kingdom was divided into two and became the nation of Judah with the two tribes and the nation of Israel with the ten tribes, Jeroboam felt threatened. And you can read about that in 1 Kings 12. Jeroboam became convinced that if the people of the ten tribes continue to bring their sacrifices to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, that sooner their allegiance and loyalty would shift back to the house of David. And that would be the end of him and the end of his reign. And so he scurries off and he gets some religious advice. And he decides to make two golden calves and to erect the one in the north in Dan and the other in the south in Bethel. And thereafter he, he's not finished, he invents a new priesthood. And he's still not finished because he invents a whole bunch of new ceremonies and festivals. And so what is this? Is this a newfangled religion? Is this some kind of New cult? No, this is the same old religion. These calves, they represent the God who brought the children of Israel, Jeroboam said, out of the house of bondage, the land of slavery, out of Egypt. And these priests, they may not be Levites, but they do exactly the same work as the Levites do in Jerusalem. And these festivals and these ceremonies may have different names, but they are in essence the same thing. You see, what Jeroboam has created is a counterfeit religion. He does all that he possibly can to convince the people that it looks the same, smells the same, does the same, operates the same, is the same. There really is no essential difference between whether you worship God in Bethel, in Dan, or in Jerusalem. And whether you sacrifice in Jerusalem or in Dan, it makes no difference. And whether you attend a religious festival in Bethel or in Jerusalem, it's the same thing. 
Why, when you think of it, isn't this the same sort of thing we even hear today? Have you had any JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, or Mormons knocking on your door lately? And if you enter into conversation with them, what do they invariably tell you? We are also Christians. We too believe in Jesus. We're just like you are. But are they? Just like the Israelites are supposed to overlook golden calves, different priests, new feast days, and consider them all part of the same old religion. So we're supposed to accept that denying the Trinity is okay. Refusing to accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God is all right. Joseph Smith is kosher. The basic cry is, we're really no different. We're just a new flavor. We're just a new incarnation of the same old sweet religion. Of course, it has to be said that such a sales pitch should be ascribed not just to the JWs and the Mormons. It goes a lot further than that, of course. On a regular basis, in a religious sense, we're being told that something is genuine when actually it's not. And claims of legitimacy are always being made. We too are Christian. Never mind that we don't interpret the Bible as you do, or or don't believe exactly as, as what you confess, or hold to the same kind of moral standards or absolutes. Religious counterfeiting. It's not a unique Old Testament pastime. It still thrives today. And we need to realize that. But we also need to go beyond identifying false teachings and counterfeit religion. We we need to call it what it is. We need to say, this is idolatry. This really is... When everything is removed, all the varnish and all the finish, this really is a violation of the second commandment. This is the kind of stuff that provokes our God to deep anger. Look at how God responds to Jeroboam. He doesn't say, well, Jeroboam, I I realize... I realize that you are caught between a rock and a hard place and and that you need to do something about it. And nor does he say, Jeroboam, you need to be careful with all of this religious innovation stuff. Just don't let it get out of hand. Now the Lord sends the prophet Ahijah with this message to Jeroboam. You've done more evil And all who live before you, you've made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Really, Jeroboam, what you did is you you kicked me out of your life. 
You stomped all over me. Over who I am. What I've done. What I keep on doing and what I promise to do. You see, what Jeroboam has commissioned is not some minor religious overhaul. He's not just sprucing up the old-time religion. No, he's fundamentally altered it. And you see that especially in how the Lord talks about the hearts of the people. He says, Jeroboam, you have directed the hearts of my people away from me, the one true God of Israel, and you have directed them to idols and images of metal and stone. You've tampered with the hearts of my people, and the result is that their hearts have become perverted and twisted and sick. For these idols don't represent me. They represent other gods, dead gods, false gods. So is it any wonder that Jeroboam's sin is not treated as insignificant? This is earthquaking, devastating stuff. And every king, notice that, every king after him who supports this Israelite counterfeit religion is branded with the same chorus of condemnation. They are in the line of Jeroboam. And then notice, God does more than just single it out. He also deals with it severely. In 1 Kings 14, he predicts what will happen to the house of Jeroboam. He will see to it that nothing is left of his house. His whole family will die. Oh, and if you thought that was a mistake, think again. For look at what is said in 1 Kings 15 about Baasha. He killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed. And what does it say later about Baasha? But this, so I am about to consume Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. God uses the sword of Baasha to punish Jeroboam, and he uses the sword of Zimri to punish Baasha. And he leaves us with no doubt whatsoever that when it comes to idolatry, his anger burns against all those who pervert his word, undermine his will, and tamper with the hearts of his beloved people. Nothing displeases him more than this. Now, of course... At this point, you might be inclined to say, yes, but this is the God of the Old Testament. And this God that we read about here in 1 Kings is not the same as the God that we worship today. For the God that we worship today is kind and loving and merciful and compassionate and all the rest. He would never do or order anything like this. Well, you know, if you're in 
prone to move in that direction and to think in that direction, I would really, really warn you. I'd warn you to read your New Testament more carefully. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Who says more about hell than anyone else in the Bible? It's the Lord Jesus. Also, the New Testament is not devoid of warnings. Take, for example, the last book of the Bible, the last chapter, chapter 22 of Revelation, outside of the New Jerusalem, says, are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and who practices falsehood. I would say that one of the things that we urgently need today is a complete and accurate picture of who is God. From time to time, we do well to consider all of his majestic qualities and not just the ones that we like or the ones that make us comfortable or the ones that make us feel good. Because that's a distortion when you approach him in that way. You cannot cherry-pick God. You can't say about God, oh, I'll take that quality and that quality and that quality, but I'm going to ignore that quality and that quality and that quality. And yet so often that's what happens today. We remake God after our image, after our agenda, after our prejudices, after our likes. But our text is saying that God be God. And this God hates idolatry. And he calls upon us as his people to worship him, not as we like or as we see fit, but as he deems right. There's a beautiful expression in the Old Testament, worship the Lord in holy array. That's what we need to do constantly. But of course you might wonder as a result of all of this, is our God then bloodthirsty? Sorry for putting it that bluntly, but that's probably the question. Is he bloodthirsty? Is he malicious? Is he unpredictable? Does he get a kick out of rubbing out Jeroboam's family, Baasha's family? Well, you know, we have to be very careful when it comes to trying to understand and comprehend our God completely. In that regard, there's also a rather strange comment, and you may have caught it in our text. It's in verse 30 of chapter 15. There it says about Baasha, he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in connection with what he did with Jeroboam's family. And we read that and we kind of scratch our head and we say, what's this? See here, here, Ahijah prophesies the demise of Jeroboam's house and, and Baasha in time sees that this prophecy is fulfilled and now he's being criticized. 
How can this be? How does this make sense? We don't fully know. Let's be honest. Is God critical of the way in which Baasha went about doing his will? Was he too violent? It's impossible to say. But you know, if you think about it a little deeper, you you do need to understand this, that as in so many things in life, there are two agendas operating here. There's Baasha's agenda, and there's God's agenda. And you'll see it more often in Scripture, and you'll see it more often in life, that sometimes God uses the crooked agendas of others to accomplish his holy agenda. Sometimes he strikes with a crooked stick. And I think that's also the case here. For do you really think that Baasha went about doing this, saying to himself, I must do this, I must get rid of Jeroboam's house because my God has commanded me to do this? And I am his humble servant and I am about to do his will? From all that we know about Baasha, he would never have said that. More likely, Baasha said to himself, you know, the only way I'm going to secure my throne and make my family secure as well is to get rid of each and every threat against me. And what greater threats are there against me than the family and the sons and grandsons of Jeroboam? And therefore, I'm going to get rid of them all. It's pure political revenge and assassination. But the same, beloved, cannot be said of God. For what God does has nothing to do with politics, everything to do with righteousness and judgment. He warned long ago, that those who worship and bow down to idols will know him as a jealous God. That he will not forget their pernicious sin even to the third and the fourth generation. He warned his people, holy is my name. But, let's also not forget That great and boundless is his love toward those who worship and serve him alone. For I would remind you that the second commandment does not end on a sour note of judgment or punishment or jealousy, but it ends on a note of far-reaching love, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Look carefully. Notice his punishment extends to the third and the fourth generation, but his love extends to a thousand generations. What does that tell you? He must tell you that his love always stretches much, much further than his wrath. 
And isn't that the truth? Look at what He's done for you and I in the sending of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. A God who forgives, who forgives even the dreaded sin of idolatry, and who sends His Son to pay for it with His blood, is a God whose love and His mercy triumphs over all. Our God is holy. Our God is holy and full of love. Let's be odd. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.